So last week, we kicked off this series called Alone Together, and we talked about this loneliness crisis that is going on. And we talked about how God has a vision. God wants us to dream of a reality where we have authentic connections and friendships with people. And that's the way that we were created to live. Um, God wants that for us. And so we talked about that last week. We talked about this big idea of community, how it helps us carry each other's mats, carry each other's burdens. It helps us bring us closer to Jesus and it's this persistent presence in our life. And this morning, I wanna talk about another aspect of this community that God is inviting you into, and it's a very challenging aspect of this community. I think it's one uh, that we need to wrestle to the ground, and we need to take a step forward if we are going to follow Jesus faithfully. Uh, So before we dive in, because we're going to be talking about some things that um, are heavy this morning, some hot topic things, I just really feel like we should pray together before we dive in this morning. Is that cool with you guys? Let's pray. Um, Jesus, thank you so much that you are a God who's present with us. God, thank you that you are a heavenly Father that sees us where we are and challenges us and invites us to take a step forward. God, we thank you that you're already ahead of us. Um, God, I pray that this morning that my friends here, um, they hear your words beyond my words and they are challenged by your spirit, not by any cleverness or anything that I can come up with um, to take a step forward to become the people that you have dreamed for us to be. God, we love you and we thank you for this text that we get to look at this morning, the scriptures that speak so clearly to us in 2021, even though they were written thousands and thousands of years ago. It's a miracle they were preserved for us and they speak to us today. So we thank you for that. Everybody agreed and said, amen. My friends, we are living in a cultural moment that is so divided up into what I'll just call cultural tribes. And tribes, it's, it's archaic language. We don't think of ourselves as tribes, but there are so many different issues. There are so many different things that we find a small community around, and then we see that the other side are evil. The other side are against what we're about, and we need to do everything we can to stop the other side and whoever they may be. And we find these cultural issues everywhere. And, and a couple light examples, this morning, we find it a cultural tribe in this question right here. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? LeBron James or Michael Jordan? The clear answer is, of course, just kidding. Oh, look, I I love my church. I heard clearly Michael Jordan. I love my church. That's good. Oh, man, Uh, it's crazy. But there's that's one issue where people have really dug in and they found their sides on. Here is another one right here. Uh, inside of the soda wars, there's Coke and Diet Coke. Any like buddy like obsessed with Diet Coke in the room this morning? I know there's always some people. <laughs> Wes, our host this morning, is obsessed with Diet Coke. And then like classic Coke, there's Coke versus Pepsi. There's the wars about that. Now there are two different kinds of Coke Zero. Like there's the old kind and the new kind. In my house, we've switched to the new kind. And I know a couple people that I work with are still obsessed with the old kind. But people really, like they dig in and they know what soda is their family soda. It's like a family tribal kind of thing, right? Here's another one right here. And the Geek Wars, um, where I live often because I'm a big nerd, is, you know, Harry Potter books and movies or the Lord of the Rings books and movies. And if you have a strong, strong opinion about this, you are a nerd and uh, you are welcome here. That is the only thing that, <laughs> that I would know because I love all of these stories. They're so powerful. Uh, both of them, honestly, are very beautiful allegories for the Christian story and the gospel. So if you haven't checked out either of these, you really should. They're really awesome. Um, but yeah, people find themselves on different sides. Here's the big one right here when it comes to pizza. Pineapple on pizza or nah? Not, like, not at all. I, I just have to admit that uh, my niece and nephew have turned me into a pineapple on pizza, like some spicy sausage and then pineapple on pizza. 
really good, and I'm not going to give them credit for it to their face, but uh, it's, I'll give it to you. Now, anyway, yeah, so people are really dug in here. And these are some light examples of where people have really strong opinions, and there's this tribal atmosphere around it. But uh, can we just talk about, like, the moment that we find ourselves in, uh, in our culture, how there's some more heavy examples than the stuff we looked at, right? When it comes to the political spectrum, Man, I don't know, like, I, I've paid attention to politics for as long as I could read, basically, and I don't know if there's ever been a time where people are more dug into the ground about what team they are on. <laughs> we're dug into the ground, whether we're right or left, whether we were Trump or Biden, elephant or donkey, and it's not just that we find ourselves having a team that we root for, it's that right now in the political spectrum of our culture, to me it seems like Um, there's this righteousness that is attached to what team that we root for. And not only is there a personal righteousness if we're on the right or the left, but there is a demonization of the other side. There is this generalization of the other side that is just so harsh right now. And this is where we find these cultural tribes that we're living when it comes to the political spectrum. Um, When it comes to this lingering pandemic and how we are dealing with this lingering pandemic, there are so many things. I feel like the end of 2020 was like the great mask wars, right? Where uh, you were either pro-mask all the time or uh, you were against masks, didn't believe that they worked. And people were so dug into the ground about what they believed about it. And they had a lot of opinions about the other side, right? (laughs) Oh, they don't care about other people or they don't trust the science. And there were all these harsh things spoken where these cultural tribes, we found our side and we demonized the other side of the issue really well. And if 2020 was about uh, the piece of fabric that many of us put over our faces all the time, uh, 2021 has become the vaccine wars, has it not? <laughs> I mean, it's become like, what do we do with this, uh, this uh, vaccine, this medicine, this uh, scientific breakthrough in the middle of this crisis? Um, there are people that think it should be mandated for everybody, and there are people strongly on the other side. There are people that think you're going to start picking up 5G and become one of Bill Gates' kids, and then there are people that think that this is something that we should make sure everybody does. And people are dug in on this issue, too, and it's just divisive, and the language and the rhetoric is so heightened that I'm, like, nervous talking about it in front of my friends this morning because I know that in our church we've got different opinions, we've got different thoughts about this. But I just say all that to illustrate that the moment that we find ourselves in, in 2021, man, there is this heightened rhetoric, there is this heightened sensitivity, and there's this heightened tribalism, if you guys will allow me to call it that, that we see in this time. And I believe it's actually infiltrated churches everywhere, not just Bridgeway, but any place where the name of Jesus is on a building, it's infiltrated this as well, which honestly breaks my heart. Because I see in the narrative of the text uh, this tribalism being a part of the culture, and then Jesus blows it up. (laughs) See, the world that Jesus was born into, it had intense cultural tribalism going on as well. I mean, I would say even more so than maybe what we're experiencing in 2021, if it's possible for us to imagine. There was racial and ethnic tribalism going on. Um, There were God's people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and then they believed there was everybody else. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles and there was hatred and racism and uh, vitriolic language and actions and culturally acceptable violence that was going on all the time between these groups of people. And the walls were built up high, the fences were up high between people of different ethnic races and different ethnic walls. 
uh, in the socioeconomic world, in the way that the world economy was made in the time of Jesus, there were huge dividing lines between what we'll just call servants and masters. Masters were the ones that were pulling the strings. Masters were the business owners, the wealthy few that made up less than 20% of the ancient world that Jesus was born into. And then 80% of those people served those people. They were either slaves, indentured servants, or they were completely tied in to the well-being of the masters. And there was this hatred. There was this, uh, this violence that was often between them, but there was also this boiling hatred that was just coming to the surface all the time between servants and masters. Not only that, but in gender in the world that Jesus was born into. I mean, there were men and women, and men truly ran the world, and women were on the outside looking in. Women in the world that Jesus was born into, they couldn't learn in schools past a certain age. They couldn't own business or work in the marketplace. Uh, They were not able to worship in the same ways that men were at all, and there was no way for them to rise up in this culture. So there was this tension between men and women as well. So the world that Jesus was born into was walled up, and there were all these barriers between different kinds of people. But what I want you to understand, what I would love for you to grasp this morning, is that what Jesus unleashed on the world through the cross and through the resurrection did so much. It made a way for me to come into a relationship with God. It made a way uh, for me to find wholeness and healing in Jesus, and it made a way for you to do that as well. But it didn't just do that. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, you guys, it also made walls between people fall down. And as much as like a personal salvation message is found in the New Testament where like you can find your way back to God, there were other things that the cross of Jesus did that were part of the gospels as well. And we see it all over the New Testament. Paul, who was one of the early followers of Jesus, writing to a church in this place called Ephesus, he says this about what Jesus did at the cross and at his resurrection. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says, specifically here between Jewish people and everybody else, the Gentiles, he says, there is no more wall of hostility between these two ethnic groups. There is just one in Jesus, and that's what he's done at the cross and through his resurrection. Paul, and one of um, many Bible scholars believe one of Paul's calling cards, one of his talking points in his sermons, it's recorded for us in Galatians. He also says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, no ethnic barrier, neither slave nor free, no socioeconomic barrier. There is no male or female, no gender barrier, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These walls that we put up to make ourselves feel good in our echo chambers, in our little tribes, Jesus broke them all down. It's just one of the things that this um, incredible event of the cross and the resurrection did. It broke down barriers. That's what it did. Now, just for a moment, we got to talk about why we love our tribes. We just got to be honest. <laughs> it, it, it feels good to have a cultural tribe around you where everybody agrees with everything you agree with. They're passionate about what you are passionate about. Uh, why do we love our cultural tribes? You think about maybe a group that you're a part of. It's because it's not awkward. (laughs) You don't ever feel like, oh, if this topic's going to get brought up, it's going to get awkward. Uh, We feel security in our cultural tribes, and we can talk freely with other people about certain issues because we know they agree with us, and we just feel like safe in that space. You know, another reason that we love our cultural tribes that Jesus works so hard to break down is because there's a common enemy. 
If there's a common enemy, if there's another side of an issue that we can demonize, that we can point all the blame to, you know what it makes us feel? It makes us feel really good, right? <laughs> feels good. There's clarity of our lives. And if these people are the problem or if this is the problem, we're not the problem. We don't have to do any work ourselves. <laughs> Isn't that true? We love our cultural tribes, but what I want to show us this morning is in the way that at the cross and the resurrection, it broke down these barriers. It broke down this reality of us having these cultural tribes. Uh, man, Jesus is inviting us to have friendships that don't look like those cultural barriers. Jesus is inviting you and me and us as a community of faith here at Bridgeway to be people that befriend the other. And whatever the other is, Jesus is inviting you to take a step towards them in friendship, in community. So I'm going to talk about three of those barriers that we see in our culture today, three of those barriers that honestly have been around since uh, people, and we're going to look at some of these texts in the New Testament. And I wanted to challenge us to be people that don't do life alone together, but truly do life together with people that are different than us. And the first cultural barrier that I want to talk about are socioeconomics. It's wealth disparity. It's the, that fight between those who have and those who have not. And you know, the current cultural narrative between people that have resource and don't have resource, man, it's pretty hot temperature, right? I mean, you see this kind of stuff in the news all the time and people that are class fighting another class and class warfare and people that are really making a dividing line between people that have resource and don't have resource. And a current cultural narrative of people that don't have resources that the poor, right? The poor, they make terrible decisions. They uh, don't take care of their money. They didn't stay in school. And there's all this blame that is placed on people that don't have a lot of resource. And that's just sort of a cultural narrative that sort of, uh, you know, bubbles up to the surface in our language about people and the way that we hear things on the news. But the poor are kind of denigrated like they deserve it. They shouldn't have done something. They didn't really figure it out. They should learn to pick themselves up from their bootstraps. But the, the language, uh, the intensity of the language is not just about people that don't have a lot of resource, but there's a lot of hatred towards people that have a lot of resource, right? I mean, I've been in a lot of rooms with people where, it's, where there's just this automatic judgment towards people because you, of the kind of car that they drive or an automatic judgment towards people because of how they spend their money. I mean, oh, they have a pool, so you know they're doing well. Or they just got a new car, and oh, I bet they should probably spend their money a little differently. Or you figure out how you can spend the wealthy people's money a lot better than they're figuring out how to do it, right? And there's this judgment towards them. And if we think about our social circles and the people we hang out with, a lot of times we gravitate towards the people that are in the same socioeconomic status that we are in. And this, my friends, is a problem. And this was a problem back in the New Testament, <laughs> In the first century, you know, Paul, he's, he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he's, he's giving them a lot of praise for a lot of things that they've done, but other things he's upset about. And we're going to look at a passage where he is apoplectic, you guys. He is, I love that word, by the way. I just love apoplectic. He is so angry. He is honked off at the way that there's this division between the people that have and the have-nots. So let's look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the following directives, he's talking to this church, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In other words, your services that you do on the weekends, like you might as well not have them. They're doing more harm than they're doing good, which is harsh. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. 
And to some extent, I believe it. And most biblical scholars believe this next uh, sentence is actually Paul writing in sarcasm. He's so ticked off, he's being sarcastic at this point. He says, no doubt that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. In other words, of course, you've got to make up some differences between you because it makes you feel good about yourself if you can look down the row and be like, well, at least I'm not like Shirley, like things like that, right? And Paul is ticked off about this. And we get into the next verses about why he is so upset with these divisions in the church. The next verse here. So then when you come together, is, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. See, what's going on in the first century when uh, they would gather for their gatherings, they would meet in probably a wealthy person in the church's home because they had the most space, and they would gather inside the home, and they would share communion together or the Lord's Supper. But back in the first century, the Lord's Supper was called a love feast, right? This was this idea that there was a whole meal where they would gather together, and they would tell stories of Jesus and sing songs and look at scriptures together. But there was this whole meal that was happening, and it was the Lord's Supper during this time. Now, apparently what was going on in in the church of Corinth is that the wealthy people were getting together first and they were having a lot more food because they were bringing more food to the table. That's their uh, understanding. So they're having a lot more food and drink first and then the, they would invite the poorer among them to come to church and then they would just get the leftovers. So Paul sees that there are certain people that are getting really full, getting stuffed, and then they're drinking so much wine they're getting drunk and other people don't have anything for them themselves. There was this dividing line of people of different socioeconomic statuses. And Paul goes ahead and he's, he's explaining that what you're doing is humiliating those who have nothing. You're dividing yourself as the haves and the have-nots, and you're humiliating those who have nothing. And Paul says, this is not okay. I can't believe this is happening here. I'm not going to praise you in this matter. He goes on and he says this a few verses later. He says, so then whoever eats the, br the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of our Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, a.k.a. have died. Dang, Paul, like not pulling any punches at all. Now, when I was growing up, this verse would always be brought up for not taking communion seriously in church. Like this verse would be brought up if you came to like the communion table and you were giggling and joking with your friends. This verse would be brought up when I was a teenager if I had some kind of secret sin pattern in my life that I wasn't repenting of and taking to Jesus. You know, in the context of this verse, what this verse is really about, Paul is saying you, you take communion in an unworthy manner if you are not thinking about your brother and sister among you and what they actually need. And you're just stuffing your face doing something of yourself. And Paul says here, what we have highlighted, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. You know, discerning the body of Christ in this context, if we just try to do good Bible study, in the context here, discerning the body of Christ is looking at people among you and making sure that everybody is okay, making sure that there is enough to go around for everybody. If there's a need among you that you don't take a step forward to try to meet, you're not discerning the body of Christ. And Paul uses harsh language saying that you're drinking judgment on yourself. So my friends, Paul says, Jesus is inviting you into, I am challenging us to be a group of people, that we have friendships with people 
who have more money and less money than we do. That we don't let this be a dividing line, but we get together as the body of Christ no matter what our socioeconomic status is. This is what's pleasing to Jesus, and this is the dividing wall of hostility falling down. Next, another dividing wall in our culture right now is is race and racism and racial tensions between groups of people. And there are so many really important and powerful conversations in our culture going on right now about how to make sure that we uh, move forward and we become a community, we become a nation where everybody has a seat at the table and the color of your skin does not matter in that way. And we've got a lot of work to do. I'm just gonna say that, but for our intents and purposes today, I wanna think about this, the division that we have and the way that we don't have close proximity to people with different color skins, different, different ethnic backgrounds. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the most um, segregated hours in America, when are they? They're Sunday morning, right? <laughs> And just elephant in the room, this is talking about us too, right? And there's so many important conversations going, but I think it breaks the heart of God that on Sunday morning as Christians gather, there are people of one race that meet down the street there, and there are people of another race that meet there, and there's not more of a melting pot among us. And many of our churches don't look like our community of a whole, And this was actually, this has been an issue all the way through the pages of scripture where there's been dividing lines and ethnic differences have gotten in the way of proximity to other people. Another place where we see this is in the book of Galatians, which is a New Testament letter. Many scholars believe it's the first letter that Paul wrote. And Paul is writing about this incredible, like, you know, this bomb that was set into the world called the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and how it takes down those dividing walls of hostility, and he speaks specifically of this new community, this new humanity that Jesus is making, where it's not just Jewish people, but it's everybody else invited to the table as well. And in the second chapter of Galatians, uh, he actually talks about a confrontation that he had with somebody else, because they were not living in this new humanity where there were no ethnic walls between people. I want to take us there. This is one of the the very first passages of the Bible that like set my hair on fire as a teenager. I couldn't believe this was in the Bible. This turned the Bible from just like God taking somebody's pen onto a scroll to this living document. And it was so much drama. It's juicy stuff. Let's take a look at it together. Here's Galatians chapter two, starting in verse 11. Uh, Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Paul, who is a leader in the early church, is talking about Cephas, which is the Jewish name for another guy, a guy that we know, or many of us might know, called Peter. And Peter is the leader of the early church. And so from this verse, Paul is saying that I, as one leader of the early church, I'm calling out the head honcho of the early church to his face because he stood condemned. There is, there's like drama inside of this between two leaders of the early church. Now, sidebar, if you are making up a religion and you're putting together a Bible to make a case for a religion, why would you include this? You wouldn't include this because this sounds like drama. This sounds like infighting. This is not a good look for the early church, right? But it actually happened. And Paul is saying, I'm calling Peter out to his face because he's doing something that is so antithetical to the gospel. He says this in the next verse. For before certain men came from James, who was a Jewish person, so before certain men came that were Jewish, he used to eat with Gentiles. Now, what is all this about who you eat with? Why does it really matter? We've talked about this many times before, just the power of a table in the first century. But in the first century, in this time, who you ate with was who you were. 
So if you ate with religious, righteous people, people thought that you were religious and righteous. If you ate with the scum of the earth, like often Jesus did, you were considered to be dirty or the scum of the earth. And it was very popular Jewish practice that if you were a Jewish person, you didn't eat with Gentiles. But Peter knew, Peter knew that like Jesus was doing a new thing and Jesus was inviting everybody to the table. So we're told here that Peter was eating with Gentiles before the people from James, the Jewish people came to the room. But he got some social pressure, and this is what happened, we're told next, why Paul is so upset with Peter. But when they arrived, when the other Jewish leaders arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, or in other words, the Jewish leaders. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Paul calls out the hypocrisy of Peter saying, hey, you were sitting with Gentiles, like sitting with everybody else in this new kingdom, this new reality that the cross and the resurrection brought into the world of just one humanity. You were doing that, but then your boys who are the other leaders of the Jewish Christians, they come and you start to sit back and you're like, I'm just gonna go hang out with my Jewish friends. I don't wanna cause any strife. I'll just turn my back on the Gentiles. Can we just say like, there's a lot going on here, but Peter's being a little racist. He's making a mistake here, and Paul is calling him out for it. And I think, again, this is the, this is the reality that we need, the tension we need to deal with, the reality that we need to wrestle with, is that oftentimes we are not doing anything that is on the surface. We're trying to be racist. We're not looking down on anybody else. But by who we associate with and the proximity we have to people that are different than us and their ethnicities, there are some times that we make a move like Peter and we forget that Jesus broke down the walls of hostility and he's making one new humanity under the banner of Jesus. And I think that it breaks God's heart when we just hang out with people that look like us. And I think it brings a smile to God's face when we get out of the way of those barriers. We go around them and we tear down those barriers and we intentionally hang out with people that look different than us, that have different ethnic backgrounds than we do. And like I said earlier, my friends here at Bridgeway, we've got a lot of room to grow in this. I have a lot of room to grow in leading us in this way as well. But Jesus invites us to befriend people of different races, people that don't look like us, that don't have the same cultural story that we have. Another reality of these dividing barriers between us and other people is when it comes to partisan politics. You know, the current narrative right now in in our world is that there are, there are two main sides in America, right? And basically, it's not now just who you vote for, it's what team you are on. You pick a team, either right or left, either Trump or Biden or elephant or uh, donkey, and uh, you pick a team and you denigrate, you demonize, you diminish the other side because there's this cultural narrative, and maybe we sometimes sleep into this, that because the other side wins, or if the other side wins, the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket, which is a phrase my grandma used to say. And we think everything is hinging on this, and so we demonize, we denigrate, we diminish the other side, and we don't see them as people that God loves, and we don't seek to learn from them or anything like that. See, in the, new, in the time of the New Testament, in the first century, um, it's pretty obvious, and stick with me on this, that the message of Jesus in the first century was a political message. 
Now, be very careful here. I do not think the message of Jesus was a partisan message at all, but it was a political message. We have to understand that political just means who's in charge, who's in power, how we order power. And the message of Jesus in the first century was highly political because the message of Jesus said that Jesus was the boss. Jesus was Lord. You see, in the first century, where they were being controlled by the Roman Empire, the currency of the time, and it was common language, it was written everywhere on gates of big cities that said, Caesar is Lord. Because all the Roman Caesars, all the Roman emperors, believed that they had divine rights to rule. They had divine power. Some of them had divine blood. And so Caesar is Lord. But it was a common teaching of the early church. It was a common teaching of the New Testament that Caesar wasn't Lord, but they would actually say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Look at a couple of these passages where it said that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter says that in Acts 2. Peter says this in Acts 10. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Check, he says Lord of all. Not just Lord of heaven or Lord of the afterlife. No, Jesus is ruling and reigning over the cosmos and planet Earth. Right now, he is the Lord of all. If you declare with your mouth, Paul says, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, In the first century, when it was said Jesus is Lord, it was saying Caesar is not, which meant that my ultimate allegiance is to Jesus who is Lord, not to any earthly political party, not to any candidate, not to anybody who promises me anything. Ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And this was a scandalous idea that got many of the believers of the first century killed, but they stood by it, that Jesus is Lord, not, not in like a cute way of saying Jesus is God, but Jesus is in charge and Jesus is ruling the cosmos and I want him to rule my life as well. And this message of Jesus as Lord was a political message about who's in charge of you, who's in power over your life. And it was saying that Jesus has the highest allegiance. This, is, this message of Jesus as Lord says that my trust is in Jesus who is king of the world and no election turnout can change that. No result in an election can change that. And no, it doesn't matter who's in charge, Jesus is Lord. And we need to remember this because the reality is in our cultural climate right now when it comes to politics, we, we get so caught up with if our team is winning, we get so enmeshed with one side that we forget that the message over a Jesus follower's life is that Jesus is Lord and he's the one who's ruling over all. This is a challenging thought I wanna put before you in the way that we treat each other and the way we do our friendships and the people that we hang out with. Here's this thought right here. If your partisan political identity causes you to diminish the spiritual identity of another human being, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Let that soak in. Hear me in love when I say this to you guys because I love you. But if your partisan political identity, who you vote for, R or D next to your name, if that causes you to dehumanize, to diminish the spiritual identity, the idea that every single person on planet Earth, every person you've ever locked eyes with was made in the image of God, if your partisan political identity causes you to diminish and dehumanize that reality of everyone being made in the image of God, man, you're doing it wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, You can just throw this away. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we are called to do and how we are called to walk this out. My friends, don't let partisan politics and who you vote for, what side you line up with, co-opt your love and your mission to be a blessing to all people. And this means social media as well. 
As we post, man, let's not use inflammatory language, denigrating language, diminishing language about people on the other side that dehumanize them. Even if we disagree with them and we have strong convictions, man, let's not get into this game where we're not hanging out with, we're not loving people of the other side. Is it possible that through humility, we can learn from each other and see the humanity and see the image of God on all people? Hear me on this, and grace umbrella, I know this is hard for all of us, but like who you vote for politically is not your first name if you're a Jesus follower. Who you vote for and what team you align with is not your first name if you're a Jesus follower. If you're a Jesus follower, it's your beloved of Jesus. That's your first name. And we can have disagreements and you can get involved in different ways in the political spectrum, but it's not your first name. It's not the most important thing about you. And it's not the most important thing about your neighbor that you can't stand what they post on Facebook because they're on the other side. It's not the most important thing about them. The most important thing about them and about you is that you are loved by the king of the universe and you're invited into his family. That's the most important thing. Can I just say that you and I, we need friends. We need real relationships of people that disagree with us. We need that. We need that in our lives so we can fully see the world in front of us. It doesn't mean we have to bend on our convictions, but as we see things through their eyes, man, it helps us walk more in grace. It helps us be more like Jesus. I need people in my life that see the world differently than I do. Let me just say that here at Bridgeway, we are a politically diverse church, and we are going to stay there. (laughs) I'm not talking about voting for one person or the other. That's not how we're going to talk about it. But we want to be a politically diverse church where everybody has a seat at the table. But to do that, we need to love each other through who we voted for every couple years and what team that we find ourselves on. We need to love each other through that. And we can have disagreements. We can have debate. But we're going to love each other no matter what. Because this is the table of Jesus, not the table of Bridgeway or the table of Republicans or Democrats. That's what it's about. So just a couple closing challenges for us to live this out, to be people that don't have these dividing walls between us and not playing the cultural games of, oh, I'm on this team and you're on this team. Let's not play that. Here's the three ways we can do this. We live this out. First is we need to be people that get curious, that be curious. We need to be like our kids who ask why, 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 when, huh? We need to be more like our kids and ask questions. Instead of flipping out on people when they respond in a way that like upsets us, can we get curious and just ask the question, like, why? What makes you see it that way? Like, you ever think instead of just getting mad at somebody who cuts you off and just flipping out on how rude and dangerous they were, you thinking, maybe just think the question, who hurt them? Get curious to ask the questions. You know, it's easy to prejudge. It's easy to have narratives set up for other people, man, but it's not easy, and it doesn't help us bring people together. So let's be people that are curious and ask questions of other people so that we can get to know where they're coming from. Secondly, let's be people that are humble. Let's be humble. Let's ask the questions, and let's be people that don't come to the, uh, the situations and to relationships thinking that we understand everything. And we understand what they are going through. You know, humility says, if I experienced what you had experienced the way you'd experienced, I'd probably see it the way that you see it. If I'd experienced what you'd experienced in the way that you've experienced it, I would probably see it the way that you see it. Now, I don't, I don't but I can at least see where you come from. Christians should lead the way in our empathy, in our humility in this way, and not just demonize other people and make people good guys, us, and bad guys, everybody else. Right now, uh, my two-year-old, Jack, we're reading these little golden books, but they're the Star Wars trilogy. 
which is ridiculous, putting these little golden books and Star Wars in it. But he's, he, he doesn't really understand probably most of what's happening, but I'm having a great time. But he's obsessed right now with knowing who the bad guys are. He goes, bad guy? Bad guy? He points to Darth Vader, and he goes, bad guy? And I'm like, yes, but we're going to read the prequels later, and he's not quite the bad guy then. Like, it's more complicated than that, right? We want to make people good guys and bad guys, but the world is more complicated than that. And with humility, we take a step forward and we ask the qu- different questions. We take a step forward and we say, uh, what makes them tick? I want to hear your story. And lastly, I want to personally challenge each and every one of you guys to do this, to widen your circle. Open up your circle. Invite somebody into your relational realm who doesn't see the world the way that you do. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to bend on all of your convictions, but it does mean that you are being called and challenged to open up your circle to hear other people and see the humanity and the image of God on somebody who sees things differently than you do. Maybe for you, that's a coffee. Maybe for you, that's a dinner or a drink after work. Maybe for you, that's inviting somebody to your table group that you're like, man, I don't even know if they're Christian. That's beautiful. That's awesome. (laughs) But widen your circle. I want to challenge you to send a text, to just try to connect with somebody from work or somebody from your neighborhood in a new way. I've got this incredible friendship. About once a month, I have uh, I hang out with this guy after work, um, and we are nothing alike. Uh, he is an atheist. I think he's more agnostic, but he says he's an atheist. He's an ex-military interrogator that he worked in the Iraq War. He was deployed. He's now a stand-up comedian, and um, which is just the most fascinating life, right? I mean, it's just so incredible. But we just talk about a lot of things, and man, there are so many things that we do not agree on. Uh, we don't see the world the same way. But, you know, like, we learn from each other. I see the way that he sees things, and he challenges the way that I see things, which is really great. And I challenge sometimes the way that he sees things. And it's okay. And we're trying to, like, see beyond our differences, and I'm better because of it. And I hope that he's better because of it, too. But we don't, even my check mark of us being the same, like, we don't check anything off. Outside of, I think we like some of the same stand-up comedians. That's about it. But, um, but anyway, I, I, I hope that you have that. I want you to have that in your life because you need somebody else to fill in your blind spots. <laughs> and it helps us grow together. And my friends, honestly, this is what the gospel did for us too. It widened God's circle to include you. This is not just like we need to all get together hippie stuff. No, this is what Jesus did for me. This is what Jesus did for you. While you lived nothing like Jesus, while you were going in the other direction of Jesus, Jesus widened his circle. He invited you in. And you don't have a lot in common with Jesus. This is what he's done for you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. So let us be a reflection of that in the way that we order our relationships and order our friendships and our lives. Because the reality is that this is what eternity is going to look like. Check out what Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says. This is a vision of eternity that John uh, sees as he's in prison on this island. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, not voices, but in a unified loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My friends, this is what eternity is going to look like. All tribes, all nations, all people, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Colts fans, Patriots fans, they're all going to be there. So why don't we start practicing now? Why don't we start practicing with open circles, widened circles, with people that see the world differently than we do? Because we'll just practice for what eternity is going to be like.